the people of Colombia have had enough. For over a month now, Colombians, mostly youth, have been on the streets demonstrating against a government that is seemingly deaf to their concerns. What started out as a protest against a tax reform that once again favored the wealthy and punished the middle class and popular sectors has arguably become the most significant social uprising in modern times in the country. Crucially, it has weakened the power of the far-right politicians and parties tied to the figure of ex-president Álvaro Uribe. While there has always been an admirable and persistent opposition to Uribismo, what is happening in Colombia is without precedent and will mark the political future of the country for years to come. The events taking place in Colombia also give us an opportunity to analyze the role of social protests and national strikes in advancing social justice in Latin America. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Super Exploitation and Resistance podcast, powered by Common Frontiers and allies in the Canadian labor movement. This podcast brings the voices of labor leaders, activists, organizers, and social movements to a North American audience. We share the perspective of people on the front lines of social struggle and change in Latin America. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja, a Mexican freelance journalist based in Mexico City with a decade of experience supporting social transformations and revolutionary struggles in Latin America through my work and activism. Raul Burbano, a Colombian community organizer in Toronto and the program director for Common Frontiers, is our producer. The song you heard at the beginning of the show is Take Care by Benny Esguera and New Tradition Music. On the program, we'll take a dive into the situation in Colombia. We'll speak with Blandiju, a human rights defender from Quebec, who has been based in Colombia for the past 10 years. Blandine spoke with Raul and I to give us a rundown of the situation. During the program, we'll also hear from Hans Philippe, a young Colombian photographer who's been on the front lines of steep demonstrations in Bogota, the capital, as well as Yarima Rojas, a Colombian woman living in Mexico City who has been organizing solidarity efforts with Colombia. We'll begin with Blandine, who sets the scene for us. Basically, what's happening in Colombia is that we had a general strike and mobilization like we used to have uh, in the past 10 years. We've seen, a, well, 10 to 12 years, we've seen a huge increase, a progressive increase of mass mobilization. But now we're not even talking about a mass mobilization. We're talking about a social uprising, right? So this is this moment in which what is social protest actually become a popular uprising. So this is uh, the, the the nice and crazy part about it, which is like, Nobody can claim that they have any kind of control over the movement, or nobody can claim they have uh, they have any clue uh, what's gonna what's gonna happen, right? And what we can see uh, is that there's a uh, you know a long-standing situation of inequalities, poverty, and other things we've been talking about so many times. But with the pandemic, it just became worse, and it just became so absurd that many people are in the streets. So you have the old actors, let's say, like you have the unions that are taking the streets. You do have a peasant, you have a minga indígena, the indigenous folks. You know, you have blockades in, you know, in the Ruta del Sol uh, by the Catatumbo and Sur de Bolivar people, which is, you know, a region with a strong history of struggle. You have people in Catatumbo, in Arauca, you have a whole... Uh, Southwest, uh, which is well known for big protests 
where indigenous join with others. But then you have people from the neighborhood that we've been seeing starting to mobilize in the past years, specifically in 2019 and 2020. And right now, actually, what you see is like a lot of youth that is fed up. And sometimes I say youth because I have no other way to describe people because there can be youth from the popular neighborhood, some students, others, you know, like a, a large variety of what we can call youth, but that have something in common, like they don't feel it's right, the Colombia in which they're offered to grow up and live. And, and this is a revolt. So they're revolting against it. And they're even revolting against who claim uh, to be spokesperson for a movement or for, uh, you know, or for a strike or whatever. They say, no, we are uh, the ones that are in the streets. And so this is really interesting. In the midst of this kind of uprising, you can see many things happen, popular assemblies, you know, new social fabric in the neighborhoods, people working together and, and many, uh, many other uh, manifestation of, of, of what it means. I said at the beginning of this show that it is arguably the most significant social uprising in modern times in the country. We've seen new forms of social organization, the development of new cadres, and the political consciousness developing among the youth of Colombia. Though the repression has also been fierce, human rights organizations have said that security forces have killed at least 50, with over 300 missing. But there also have been victories. We hear from Yarima Rojas, who spoke live at an event in Mexico City about the political leaps the population has taken as a result of participating in this struggle. We should appreciate the citizen, social, and political effort that is taking place in Colombia. From my point of view, the Colombian people are winning this struggle against the Colombian state. Two ministers from Duque's government have had to resign. To put his government in context, it is a urbista government. Urbismo represents the far right that has been doing dirty work for many years. The finance minister resigned, the foreign minister resigned, the high commissioner for peace, who is instead labeled the high commissioner for war in Colombia, resigned, which has also been seen as a people's victory. As you know, the national strike began on April 28th as a protest against a tax reform, which they had to cancel. The reform of the health system was also on the table, and it too was canceled. It's been an interesting citizen-led process. Obviously, this has to do with economic classes. Undoubtedly, this is about the poor versus the rich, on the streets, fighting, which is taking place in low-income areas, poor neighborhoods, areas with a high population of black people, Afro-descendant people. This is a situation where there's a politicization of youth and the public, which we have not seen. They're becoming conscious of that very important role they play. And we know they call this the crystal generation, youth who don't work or study, and all the rest of the things they say about the youth that they have always said from the adult-centric worldview that robs youth of their power. And it's the youth who are saying, there is hope here. And ultimately, it's the people who are changing the country. Sometimes three days on the street can teach you more than five years studying political science or other types of formal study, because that's where one can discover their power to change things and their power to take action. If there's anyone who understands what three days in the streets can teach you, it's the youth who form part of what's come to be called La Primera Línea, or the first line. Hans Philippe explains the role 
of la primera línea. Hay que tener en cuenta que no es solo la primera línea, también hay segunda línea, hay tercera línea y hay cuarta línea. We need to keep in mind that it's not just the first line. There's also the second line, the third line, the fourth line. The first line are the youth who are fighting right in front of the police. We should be clear, the police do not abide by human rights protocols, so the youth have to face down bullets, because the truth is the police are firing live rounds. So the first line is that group or segment of the protest that are on the front lines of the battle. The second line are those who help those from the first line who've been injured. They cover and disperse the tear gas canisters. And the third and fourth line are medics, nurses, and others who've been helping on the battlefield. Those who are on the first line are young people, 17, 18, 20 years old. And they're there because they have nothing to lose. They've already lost everything. The government does not give them the option to study, work, dignified work, because it's one thing to have a job, it's another to have a dignified job. There's no commitments for the youth, and even for adults too. So you fight for a more just future. You fight for a more just future. So the youth see that they have nothing to lose. They've taken away everything from them. They haven't won anything. They haven't progressed in society. They go at it with all their might. They fight ferociously against the government. Violent repression has long played a key role in maintaining the political power structure in place in Colombia. It could be said that it is actually the first recourse of the far right. Blandine explains the role of repression by the state and by paramilitaries. A lot of people perhaps don't understand the role of repressive forces like the ESMAD in these political protests that we're seeing. So what role do state security forces and state repression play in maintaining the political status quo in Colombia, especially in light of this Paro Nacional? So there's new things in this Paro Nacional, but there's also, uh, you know, like ongoing police brutality. So the, like, let's start with the, with the background, right? So the police brutality, you have uh, anti-riot police, the SMAD, they're well known for using legal and illegal tactics. So uh, legal would be the same thing that we can face uh, in North America or in other places, which is a bad use of tools or weapons uh, that are supposed not to be lethal, but end up being lethal. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you, extreme use of taser, you know, uh, shooting at the face of the kids with the tear gas. So these kind of things, you know, that have to be denounced because those are, uh, you know, unlawful use of legal weapons. But then uh, we've seen in uh, since since forever that Esmad has also been known for beating, beating up uh, kids until they die. The case of Nicolas Neira was uh, recognized uh, more than 12 years after court ruled favor of the family and uh, accusing uh, actually a member of the police for the for the killing of that kid Nicolas Neira who who was. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, around 16 at the time when he was uh, beat up to death in a May 1st protest uh, years ago. So you have, you know, like they're well known for that. They're well known for using uh, illegal weapons. Uh, for example, like uh, what we call here recalzadas, which are basically the tear gas can, uh, but you put, uh, you put a lot of, you know, piece of metal inside it. So you, you're pretty sure you're gonna do bad injuries to people. So this is, you know, like, so we have police brutality, the way we kind of know it in North America, extreme police brutality, let's say, the way it is here. But then you also have like the whole paramilitary system on which is based state repression uh, in Colombia. And that doesn't, that do not stop 
because there's a mobilization or not, right? So, so then, you know, there's, uh, there's always been a tendency in the Colombian states to use uh, armed civilians to do the bad job, to do the, the dirty work, you know, what's been called the dirty war in Colombia and so forth. What's kind of new in this uh, mobilization, though, is that this is the first time that we see, you know, white guys with white shirt, with, uh, you know, uh, expensive clothes on, on, their, on, on, them, on themselves, taking their guns. It means they haven't sent the little kid that they pay to do the dirty job usually. They took their car because they were pissed and they went to the blockade and just shoot at people, you know, like, and so this is a bit intense. And I mean, I've been denouncing human rights violation for many, many years in Colombia, and I'm not usually surprised of something, but I was surprised of this one. I was like, so now we have white trucks showing up in mobilization and just shooting at people. So that explains uh, the, the crazy amount of people that have been killed, like more than 50 in just a month. And that also explains like the, the rage and the fear. And, and also it's, uh, it's a bit complicated even for, you know, usual human rights accompaniment mechanism, you know, like what you do if the people shoot? Well, nothing, you know, like th this, is, uh, this is way harder in terms of dissuasion, in terms of way to, to deal with it. Colombia's modern history is one that has been marked by war. First, with the period known as La Violencia, then the armed struggle by guerrilla organizations, which continues to this day due to the failure of various peace processes. But it's a war that, more recently, has been confined to the countryside. The violence of paramilitaries against social movements and social movement leaders is well known in rural Colombia. Hans explains how the ruling class tries to justify this violence in the city. Lo que pasa es que en Colombia toda esta violencia ya se vivía en los campos. The thing is, in Colombia, people in the countryside were already living with this violence, and now we're living through it in the cities. And so the strategy of the government to mislabel social protest in order to be able to repress it, when the tactic works, they use media because the media is allied with the government. So that's where disinformation comes from. People don't have good sources to turn to. That's why I think it's important to look at things critically and not just accept at face value the information the government provides. We must seek other means of getting informed so that people can learn and they can be more aware of what's happening. In our next clip, Raul asks our guest Blandine to expand on this topic. Blandine, you mentioned something very interesting. You know, traditionally in Colombia, yeah, you know, the, the, the bosses or the right wing are paying young people, you know, sicarios or go on motorcycles to kill people. But you've mentioned sort of a different phenomena where, you know, the, the sicarios are actually sort of paramilitaries organized. These are, you know, what you said look like well-dressed uh, males who are coming out to shoot people in a point blank on the streets. So I think there's two phenomena here. First, the paramilitary structure uh, never disappeared. Like this always have been a joke. It's been denounced by so many organizations here. There was a supposedly a peace process with them around 2008, uh, but the, the actual structure of paramilitarism uh, was never, you know, never touched. And actually that was an issue in the, in the negotiation, the peace negotiation with FARC. The, the FARC as a political party nowadays has been denouncing it too, because actually it's, it's part of why their, uh, their ex-combatants are being killed and it's like kind of failure, let's say, the, the, the peace agreement. But then what we can see 
is that the actual government, you know, Uribe uh, Duque government, uh, they're, you know, they've been doing uh, public calls in terms of, you know, that legitimacy of the owner, you know, like of a small business to defend himself, right? So now you can see on Twitter, you know, like persons who just like take a camera and film themselves and they're like, yeah, like the police cannot do it by themselves, you know, like people are going to burn out my house and my small business, you know, because they think that vandals are going to attack their, their business, which is really not what's happening uh, in the streets, right? So there's that, that class confusion, let's say, between like, you know, uh, what, what can um, some type of protest do, which is, you know, breaking banks and McDonald's and things that we've seen in, you know, in summits and other things. And that kind of confusion of like, oh, my ownership of my small business is in danger, so I need to arm myself to do to do it, right? And so this is this is a real danger because it's been encouraged, and because of impunity, uh, it can happen more and more. For example, we have that terrible case uh, last Friday after a month of uh, mobilization of judicial police officer. He was uh, he was on vacation. He was not on duty. He was at home. There's a there's the demo and the what he sees as the vandals are in the street. He take his gun, go to the street and shoot people, and you know end up being killed by the people uh, stopping him from shooting. You know, like so this is the kind of of confrontation that is kind of being encouraged uh, by the kind of discourse of a government who's having a discourse of war against social protest. And if you see internationally what Duque has been saying and his minister is basically that there's a, an international complot by uh, leftist forces that are trying to overthrow the power in Colombia and wherever in on the world, and it has to be uh, faced militarily, right? So, so this is this is also why the answer to the protest is to send seven thousand military officers to the roads to stop the blockade, right? It's a, it's a mindset of war in order to face uh, what is social mobilization, social uprising, social unrest due to inequalities. Yeah, it's interesting that you use this phrase, this mindset of war, because one of the criticism that has been leveled against the, the Duque, the Uribista governments, has been precisely this emphasis they put on armed conflict and their virtual abandonment of the peace process. So with the scenes that you're describing, the decisions that this government is making, where does this leave the peace process, which was meant to inaugurate you know, more social stability, attending to the root causes of, of social dysfunction. Where are we at and what does this Paro Nacional mean for the peace process? Mm, well, the peace process uh, is a kind of a sad story because uh, the, the peace process has added itself many limits uh, in terms of the even the, the previous government, the one who negotiated the peace uh, with uh, one of the guerrilla in Colombia, the FARC, at the time, since 2000, between 2012 and 2018, they were uh, negotiating. Uh, and after we're supposed to get into the implementation phase, which never happened at the end, it had it all, its own limits, right? The, the government says really clearly since 2012 that they would not negotiate military doctrine or uh, economical system. So we won't talk about capitalism. We won't talk about inequality. We won't talk about the fact that the military uh, see the Colombian people themselves as an internal enemy and a danger in communism and terrorism and all the, you know, all the ism uh, that can scare governments. So, so basically, there was already uh, limits in the, in the process. 
but then you know like the the, the park decided uh, to to go forward with it and you know like kind of lower down their expectation around the along the way uh, as needed but then uh, but then the the santos government lost the election and it was an excuse for the government to not comply with what was state commitment right because a peace agreement is not signed with the government it's signed with uh, with the state and so the the actual government decided not to comply with uh, with many of the agreements uh, that that have been done, uh, one of them is the implementation of the peace agreement. They haven't made it official, but what they did is uh, basically not do anything. So, which basically meant uh, not uh, not implementing. And the 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 peace negotiation that were ongoing with the other uh, guerrilla, the ELN, uh, were stopped in January 2019. Uh, taking as an excuse uh, a, a military action of the, of the guerrilla, but actually you do a peace process because you want military action to stop, so you can't ask them to stop before you actually negotiate. And the problem is that the Colombian government uh, decided not to respect the international protocols. So basically, the, the, the Colombian governments and state in general haven't been uh, complying with any kind of agreement with the insurgency, none of them, or with the people of Colombia, because at the same time that you had a peace process, like what we call formally a peace process between insurgency and government, you had a lot of mobilization process here that ended up in negotiation, that ended up in agreements, but were signed by the state and by the government in terms of investment, in terms of you know ongoing uh, agreements to you know uh, get the quality of life better, and and nothing have been complied. So so basically, what you have nowadays is that you have many people that do not trust the state or the government to negotiate or sign anything. So you can have a Comité National de Paro or you know like some representative of a movement that uh, want to negotiate with the state, but you have many people in the street who are like, what what do you want to negotiate with the state that is not complying, not even to international agreements, right? <laughs> Blandine, in terms of, you know, Canada, obviously we're, we're, we're situated, uh, or I'm situated anyways, has a lot of economic interest in Colombia, you know, whether it's mining as an example or other uh, investments. So it's no surprise that they have been very reluctant to put any pressure on Colombia. You know, they came out with a very weak statement blaming kind of all sides, the protesters and the government and hoping that, you know, peace is resolved soon type of thing. And, and, and I just saw a tweet uh, yesterday that Canada, Colombia had a, you know, some really successful bilateral discussions, uh, and of course they were productive and they were, you know, related to trade and investment. They were related to Venezuela, and maybe like a nod and a wink to human rights. What does that tell you about Canadian foreign policy in, in relation to Colombia? Well, the Canadian foreign policy uh, in regard to the planet or their own economical interests, their own safety and security and uh, the, you know, the well-being of Canadians, right? And so that policy means that uh, Canadian embassy, uh, or you have, uh, I don't know, 60 person working on economical development and investment and making life easier to Canadian companies, most of which are oil and, mi and mining industry based. And uh, you have one or two people that are working on the issues of human rights and the rest of diplomacy, right? So that gives you an example of what, what are the, the real intention 
of, uh, of Canada, right? I mean, Canada has been uh, in the year uh, between 1999-2001, rewriting the whole mining code of Colombia just to make sure that uh, the famous click and claim policy that uh, we're so proud of in Canada that allows you to put mining above anything else um, on, on, in terms of, uh, of organizing life and, and, and territory. So the relationship between uh, Colombia and Canada is pretty much linked to the extractive sector, to uh, access to resources and so forth. So basically what many groups uh, have been saying is that, well, Canada is actually, that makes up Canada a war profiter, right? Because if there's war for at least the last 20 years and there's companies that are making money while people in the country are getting impoverished. And of course, we also know that uh, you know, Canadian manufacturers armored vehicles that were sold to Colombia. Uh, you know, they're called the Incas uh, armored cars and, and the companies in North York. And there was a statement out like in 2015 or so saying, you know, they're gonna be you know, going to Colombia. So you know, these, these armored you know, tanks or Hummers on steroids, as people have called them, could be on the streets in Colombia today, repressing Colombians. So it's important to, to keep that in mind. So we have Duque, you know, mobilizing security forces in massive numbers. The human rights violations seem to be continuing without any end. But at the same time, the demonstrators do not seem willing to give up. We have lots of people who remain on the streets who are determined to see this to the end. But what? does that end look like? What happens next? You know, we saw in Chile that it took months and months of protest to put this agenda of a constitutional change on the table. So what happens here in Colombia? Excellent, uh, excellent question. Uh, I don't know what's gonna happen next, but what I know is that there is, you know, there's a process of popular assemblies and people organizing in these kind of, you know, processes uh, in, in, in their neighborhoods or in, in their regions. And that's pretty interesting and that's pretty massive. But I think what's definitely happened with a social uprising is that it's a process that, that it's on a longer term than what we're used to analyze, right? So what we see today is the consequences of years and years of mobilization and what happened in the past months is going to have an impact for, for many, many years, right? Those kids that are 15, 16, 17 that are in the streets, but I've seen all these injustices, but I've seen their friends dying and so forth, they're going to get adults and they're going to be the one building the Colombia of tomorrow. So there's something really interesting there. Hans Philippe, who has been on the front lines as part of the Primera Línea, tells us what it's like to face down the police in Colombia. A lot of adrenaline. It's a moment full of adrenaline because you're on a battlefield. It's intense to think that at any moment, you can be the next one to die as a result of a stray bullet. But despite that, one does it because this feeling and this desire that things get just is stronger. There's nothing to lose. The most important thing is to go out as a community, the whole society, to protest. The youth in Colombia do not want to stop because the number of people dead at the hands of police and the government is too much. It's very difficult for young people to see how they're killing friends. That's why they remain on the street until they demilitarize the city. The national strike will not end. The struggle continues until they tell us what happened to the disappeared. No va bajar el paro. La lucha continúa hasta que hasta que nos esclarezcan también los desaparecidos. What's going to happen next? Uh, 
I'm unsure because I don't really understand the policy of the government. It's like it doesn't seem um, open to any kind of negotiation. And even if there was a type of negotiation between uh, this leadership, let's say, old, like, you know, like old style leadership of the of the protest, the one who first called the strike, I'm not sure that would have any impact on the actual social unrest in the neighborhoods and so forth. So that's why there's there's many, many, many things that are uh, that are unknown. And I, and I wouldn't say I, I know what's going to happen. What I know is going to happen from organized movement is that there's going to be a lot of call of solidarity for people to call to, to come to Colombia to a verification mission. And there's going to be many calls uh, of, of support. But uh, I, I cannot say uh, how many people are going to be in the streets when because I, I don't know. And that's the beauty of it. We close today's program with a message from Hans Philippe to those in the United States and Canada. The message is, seek out accurate information. Do not be satisfied with the first thing you hear. Seek out new sources, teach yourselves, read, reach out, and ask people who are living through this crisis, ordinary people, what is happening. And I'm sure people will happily tell them what is really going on. That's the program for today. Thank you again for listening and hearing from those on the front lines. As Hans said, it's important to seek out alternative voices that you won't hear on mainstream outlets. So with that in mind, please share this program with your friends and colleagues. And as always, you can reach out to me personally and provide feedback. My handle is at GranadoSeja, G-R-A-N-A-D-O-S-C-E-J-A, on all social media platforms. We want to thank the supporters of the show especially Common Frontiers and the Canadian Labour Movement, including the Canadian Union of Postal Workers and QP Ontario. Special thanks to the creative team behind the operation. Guillaume Charbino-Quintal, Dr. André Lacroix, Michel Mungenatu, and Pamela Arancibia. We close today's program with a song from Son Rompepera, who played at the fundraiser for Colombia in Mexico City and who have accompanied social struggles throughout the region. We'll see you next time. And hasta la victoria siempre.